Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Delighted you could join us for today's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen here with Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm good. No Murph, though. I do miss the, the big guy. He's, well, he's got a sniffle. He has got a sniffle. Don't be so sneering. He's off sick. He's not a man to take a sick day lightly, Ken, as uh, you know. No, Although, I have heard a rumour, Ken, that it's Murph's dog's birthday today. Oh, for I, exactly. I take it in good faith that it's just a coincidence that he has a day at home to celebrate this uh, momentous day with pickles. Dog must be two now, right? Say two, yeah. yeah. Yes, Pickles, those brighter football historian listeners out there. It is a dog named after the dog who found the 1966 World Cup. Beautiful dog. Not the brightest. <laughs> I wonder, is it house trained yet? Two years in. Would, it, would, it, would, would a dog on average be house trained? Oh, by yeah. By two, you'd want to be behaving reasonably be, well. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not happened yet, it's probably not going to happen. Nice dog, though. Beautiful dog. Mm. No Murph, but we have got two cracking guests, both in studio. Guest number one, a man who became one of this country's greatest ever sports people through his exploits in the rugby pitch, but only after trying his hand at a number of other sports. And by trying his hand, I mean competing ferociously and obsessively at a number of other sports. Paul O'Connell, can't wait to have Paul in today. It's kind of like what the rest of us have done as kids, but just with, a, with an edge. You know, like he designs his own little golf course in the back garden. Wimbledon is on, himself and his brothers managed to make a tennis court out of out of what they've got, that sort of thing. But already he's thinking about what he was going, what he was, what he was doing, how he was going to win and get an edge. You know, his, his brother was more talented at basketball, mm. so Paul be watching him throw up these fancy three-pointers and stuff. But Paul's calculating, going, mm, yeah, one three-pointer and then one missed three-pointer, that's three points. Well, I'm going to perfect the layup, not the prettiest shot on the eye, but if I get two out of two, I've beaten you 4-3. Mr. Consistency. Mr. Consistency. <laughs> Ticking over. Now, he, he has a nice little detail about I mean, he, the golf seems to have been quite a big thing. Yeah, you know? golf was big after swimming. So building building um, go- little golf courses, <laughs> which <laughs> Within lar- largely seem to be indoors. Yeah, actually. indoors. Then they golf, go yeah. to the outdoors. And then, you know, cutting the grass down with the lawnmower as short as you can get. And then putting the hutch of the guinea pigs over the hole so that, like miniature sheep, they would nibble the grass down to <laughs> green length. Now, that's someone who's thinking hard about the game. Guest number two, one of the very few people anywhere who has any real idea what Katie Taylor is letting herself in for. She begins a professional boxing career in London on Saturday night. That's Monaghan's Christina McMahon. Not only has Christina boxed Katie's first opponent, she's been grinding away in the 
Well, it sounds like quite a murky world of women's pro boxing for quite a few years now. She's got a hell of a tale to tell about what it's really like to try to get to the top of that sport, Christina, a little bit later on. We're about 10 days away now, I think, from our huge end-of-year live show at the Liberty Hall Theatre in Dublin. It's the homecoming of US Murph. It's our 750th podcast, can you believe that? It's going to be great. Why are you telling me this when it's already sold out and I couldn't get a ticket? I hear you grumble. Well, just to let you know that the show will be available to podcast after it's recorded so you can get a good sense of what goes down on the night. And this is all with thanks to Original Penguin Clothing and Aer Lingus. Great people in both of those companies, of course, Ken. As Great well people, know. the best people. Okay, in studio now to talk about his book, The Battle, uh, multiple Heineken Cup and Six Nations champion, captain of Munster, Ireland and the Lions. Or for you younger folk out there, it's the Borussia Mönchengladbach guy, <laughs> Paul O'Connell. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Very what well. an answer. What an incredible answer. Yeah. We see if anyone watched the rest of the show, they would have seen some of the answers I didn't get right, like a baseball team starting with M in America. Yeah. The New York Mets didn't get that. And an Irish Ryder Cup golfer uh, with a beard. Oh, with a beard? I'm not even getting that now myself. Irish Ryder Cup golfer. How recent are we talking? Graham McDowell, does he have a beard, kind of? I feel better now. It was Darren Clark. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Right. Yeah, I got those wrong. So yeah. that's essentially like that, that's see, what it essentially cost us the uh, <laughs> the title on the night. I love the fact you're kicking yourself about the ones you got wrong. That's the, <laughs> that's, that's the, the perfectionist there. <laughs> Tell us, you seem to be enjoying retirement anyway. You've, have you slipped back into the Ireland and Munster fan mode fairly easily? Um, I I have actually. Yeah, I go to a lot of the Munster games with my boy and with my dad. Um, uh, yeah, and I've I've worked at a few of the Ireland games. I've I've gone up and done a little bit of TV, which. Um, which is interesting, um, and uh, and I've been to a few of them as a fan as well, and watched a few on TV as a fan. So I have slipped into it. I mean, I, I I'm a contented retiree. I think okay. you know, I was I was I was disappointed not to go to France and 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 have that experience in Toulon. But when it came, um, I was 35, and I've been struggling with injuries for a while. So it wasn't the end of the world for me. You're in Chicago. I was in Chicago. It was a great yeah. photo of yourself and Dougie. How, Dougie looked even more delighted than you. <laughs> well, no, Dougie, I hope I, got, I probably got Dougie into trouble there right. because Dougie was obviously disappointed with the defeat. But you know that is that photo is actually the full journey from player to supporter because we were, you know, the way fans wait for the players doing a lap of we waited for the players doing the lap of water so we could catch their eye. And I think at that point we've just spotted a few of the monster lads, or they've spotted us, and we're actually waving at them. So. Uh, so it's a it's a funny photo. Yeah. So he wasn't actually delighted with the result, but no. it was just seen. It did seem he was like happy that, for yeah. the. He was happy for the. You know, happy for the monster boys and the guys he would have worked with, and uh, um, you know, so he he you know he wasn't as devastated, I'd say, as some New Zealand sporters were there were that day, but. Um, but uh, he was he was really happy for them, and that was a lovely moment when we caught caught a few of the lads' eyes. Yeah, I'd say so, and it seemed like an amazing few days. I don't know if you were there for much of the Cubs celebrations and all that, but I did. I was, was there crazy. for yeah. I really did the dog in it. I was there from Wednesday. <laughs> oh, brilliant! So we saw the game on TV when we arrived over, and then uh, just as I arrived out of my hotel, that the Cubs were were driving past. I think they had seventeen double deckers. <laughs> um, so there seems every single person of staff and every family member was on the was on the bus for the parade so um yeah it was it was uh it was it was incredible it was brilliant to be involved in you know there was no part of you 
it doesn't sound like there was because it seems like you're, you're comfortable that your playing career is finished but n- not a bit of you thinking geez it didn't happen while I was there look I, I mean I said this the other way I played them nine times and I didn't beat them so I didn't really deserve another chance so um, no I look I, I think if my body was in better shape and, and I was thinking I could still be out there there might be a little I might have a little bit of that mm. um, and while I feel really good and, and you know I have no problems day to day I just I wouldn't be able to play rugby you know I, I really wouldn't be able to play rugby at all at any level like you have to kind of keep telling yourself that though you keep repeating I can't I definitely, <laughs> definitely can't do this <laughs> no I, I, I 100% no I couldn't uh, and I, I so so I think when you have that I think you you probably it's probably easier. I'd say some guys retire and they think, you know, maybe I could still be out there. I 100% do not feel that. In the book, you say, I never thought it would be something particularly special to be part of the first Irish team to beat them, as in to beat the All Blacks. It would be such a modest boast, like being giant killers when you really want to be the giant. (laughs) You're laughing now that it's happened. (laughs) Do you stick by that view? I think, I think with this Irish team and with the the setup in Irish rugby, I don't think it's going to be a one-off. I think it'll... I think it'll feed into the next four years. You know, great coaching staff, brilliant playing group, and I think, I think the next four years is really, really exciting. And I think that game is another, another box tick, box ticked, and another stepping stone. I don't think it's a one-off giant killing moment. I think it's probably the product of a lot of hard work and a lot of, a lot of hard work by the players and the staff, and then a, a lot of very good planning as well by the IRFU. So it's not the case. It certainly seems like. The idea of celebrating just a one-off win on its own, even against the All Blacks, too wildly w- wouldn't fit in with where you would have thought the Irish team has been over the last few years. Yeah, I think it was a bit of history. It was a massive, massive bit of history and a really, a really important box for us to tick off. Um, um, and, and I think they probably did celebrate it for the one-off victory it was. But I think it will be... It, it will be... It'll help the team going forward. I think it's a consequence of what's gone on beforehand and it will help the team and Irish rugby going forward it's not it's not a one-off victory you know I, that's that's my opinion yeah and it, well, I suppose backed up by the performance last week it was a, you know it's not like we dropped particularly maybe in some of the execution but you know it was still a pretty good performance were you surprised about New Zealand it's not so much surprised but do you feel that they went over the top in terms of the brutality of the rugby as a lot of think, a lot of us have been whinging about this this week yeah I think they were under a bit of pressure and they, they did go over the edge uh, a lot of teams do it uh, I suppose we just I suppose in recent years with the book legacy and all that we kind of we've kind of associated a kind of perfection with New Zealand mm-hmm. and I just suppose it shows that the pressure gets to everyone and uh, you know they really needed to win they really wanted to win and, and in trying to do that they went over the edge and uh you know, I've been part of teams that have done it before. I've done it myself before. So um, it just goes to show that they're human. Do you see? Do you Sorry, see Daniel. that as as a team that's actually on the verge of losing it when doing that, as opposed to right? We all know what to do here. You know, we're, a few of those guys are going to end up being carried off at the end of the day, and that's you know that's our that's our aim. You would actually see it as a team that's under pressure, that's that's lashing out and like not not fully in control of itself. I think so. The penalty count was fourteen four. Um, you know, I don't think, I don't, I don't think they would have gone out to play like they did. I think they would have been under pressure from their their staff, under pressure from their media. Um, they probably felt that, you know, conceding 
you know, two tries off malls against Ireland, they probably felt that they were dominated a little bit physically and they didn't want that to happen again. And in doing that, they they overstepped the line a little bit, I think. You know, I think from our point of view, I mean, we're plenty complaining about it, but I think Johnny, we're, we're, we're that guy, uh, we're Budden Barrett, uh, nearly didn't dot the ball down or didn't dot it down. I mean, it's probably a penalty try because Johnny kind of grabbed him around the neck, hit, hit him high as well. So, uh, and I was I was very one eyed watching that as well. But um, you know, Trimble. I think if Trimble's knock on, if that had been an All Black while we were going in under the post, I think we would have probably reacted differently to that as well. Oh, yeah, but the, 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 yeah, when he blocked the pass. The, yeah, yeah, and I think he, he was trying to catch it, but he still knocked it on and prevented a, a certain try. So. Um, I don't, but at the same time, I don't think it's been an overreaction. I think they went over the edge, and and we just don't associate that with them. That's the big thing about it, you know. We we just don't associate that with New Zealand. They generally don't play dirty, um, and they're generally very very disciplined. I think the penalty count over the two games was twenty six eight or something, you mm-hmm. know. And um, so they were dirty this time. They played a dirty game. Uh, well, I think they I think they went over the edge. I don't think they were deliberately trying to be dirty. I think they wanted to win the physical battle, and in doing that, they went high a few times. I don't think it would have been massively a, a preconceived plan. When you say that you've been involved in teams that have done that, like if people have read the book, they'll certainly, if you hark back to the early days playing club rugby and coming up through the ranks, and in maybe in the earlier days with Munster, there was a lot of that kind of thing. Are you talking about even at, at the top level? Have you been involved with Ireland teams who've gone over the edge physically? Well, I think we've gone over the edge in, in, in terms of our discipline and we've given away lots of penalties. You know, we've made a few made a few mistakes. I, I've done it before. I mean, I remember that obstruction. The Ospreys were the first team that ever really brought in deliberate obstruction, deliberate pulling and dragging around the side of the ruck. Um and 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 I got sent off. I elbowed um, Jonathan Thomas in the face. Uh, caught him badly in the face, um, and 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 I got a red card. But I, going into that game, I knew that a big part of the Ospreys game was this deliberate pulling and dragging at the side of Rook. Mm. So I, I went over the edge. It has you know you have to be able to find a better way to deal with with these things. You have to be more disciplined in how you deal with it. And I think, in fairness to Ireland, you know I I think it was a big. The, the two weeks, Chicago and 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 Dublin, were a big step forward for the Irish team. Um, I think you know, in time, we're going to get better and better. And we just we probably needed that little bit of magic then that New Zealand created. You don't have to create it every time you have the ball. You just need it once or twice mm-hmm. in the game. That's what they did. That one little phase where they created that bit of magic and scored that try in the second half and put it beyond us. So. Um, sorry, just a bit of a rambling. No, that's okay. No, 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 no. Because I'm fascinated by your thoughts on uh, not only New Zealand, but even in your own career. You know, the idea that there's even in 2016, there's still this idea of making a statement to use the euphemism physically. Because, uh, for example, right, James, this is probably eight years ago now. Is it the Cudmore incident? Which uh, you know, in the book, you talk about that. And what I was intrigued by was. Okay, so you're looking for the ref to intervene. You're getting punched by a massive man, and eventually you take it, the law into your own hands. You get a yellow. He gets a red. And mostly professional sports people would probably see that as a good result. The other team has a man sent off for the entire game. But you said that me holding back for a second or two probably made the difference between a yellow and a red. It meant we had an extra player. But uh, for most of the second half, Claremont dominated us. And I wondered how much of that was down to the physical statement Cudmore made against me. I was just kind of interested that you you, you behaved, I would have thought, correctly in that, in that way. You looked for the refs. Nothing was happening. Then you got involved. Mm. But you were kicking yourself a little bit afterwards, maybe for not just reacting straight away. Yeah. Well, rugby is completely 
changed even from those days mm. and that's not that long ago what is that 2008 2008 so yeah. that, that even feels a long time yeah, ago yeah I mean foul play has completely been more or less eradicated from rugby now you can't rock um, you know before when you punch someone as long as you weren't doing what Jamie Cobmer was doing that with, that day it was a shake hands and you were sent back in you know there's absolutely none of that in the game anymore and we were, I, was, I was asked about Mario Torje recently you know how good can he be? I said, and I was saying, look, he can be an amazing player. And one of the great things is he doesn't, as a second row, have to learn how to have eyes in the back of his head like he did in the second as as a second row when I first came through. So, for me, um, for me, I, I think it's great that that's gone out of the game. And um, although is it gone out of the game if we see what we saw last weekend? Yeah, I, I think I think it was badly handled now last weekend as well. I think uh, I, I I think. Um, I think Fekitawa should have been sent off and mm. probably Sam Kane should have been yellow carded. I don't think it was deliberate. I think that Robbie probably spun into him, but there's a big thing now on on, on, on any contact with the head, whether it's accidental or not. I, I'm, I, I was looking for the the edict or whatever it was the World Rugby sent down last... I was reading it on the internet. There's no mention, really, from what I read, and I might have gotten this way wrong, from what I read of a red card. You right. know, so... So the, and and I, and I know for a fact that some high shots referees reckon they're yellows and and they happen by accident or whatever. But um, I, I think it is being removed from the game. And that Jamie Cubmer incident that that's the way the game was then. You you uh, you, you know you couldn't let someone make a physical statement against you and 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 let him away with it. That's just the gateway. They, that's the way rugby was, and it has gone away from that. And that is, I think, it's one of the great parts of the game now. Before the rugby, well, not necessarily before, but certainly before you took rugby seriously, swimming was the kind of first sport that you really developed your competitive instincts in. You might not be aware, but we have our own underage swimming champion here. Oh, Isn't magic. that right? Over to you, Ken. It's a loose definition of champion uh, that he has. <laughs> I could see there's a photo in Paul's book of him as a swimmer. What age are you in that photo? I would say eight or nine. Eight or nine, right? <laughs> you can see in this photo there's, there are certain physical. Uh, let's say a gift, uh, gifts uh, for the pool, which which not every uh, swimmer has. But when I, I mean, I, I used to swim when, you know, around the same age as you, and, and like you, probably gave up about 15, 14, 15. Who did you swim for? Temple Oak. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, and we're the same age, so we could have. It might have. It might have happened. Might have I'm, February, I'm February. You're October. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's too many uh, national. Guys. You might remember Alan Ferns. Did you? I remember to, Alan yeah, Ferns. Yeah. Red haired guy. Yeah. 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 Me and, you, Al, me and yeah. Alan Ferns had a fight once in the in the Guinness uh, swimming pool dressing room. Oh, Watling Street is that on Watling Street there, up by St James's? That's yeah, right, yeah. King, oh, yeah. King's Hospital. He was trained there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a fight. He was, he was a very good. You had a physical fight with your teammate. Uh, so we're good. Paul O'Connell's no, he here. Was, he was, was Cormorant. He, he was Cormorant. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Paul O'Connell's here, and I'm now asking Ken about <laughs> fights he had as a teenager. This is great. But uh, what? What? I mean, not that I'm always talking to people about having been a swimmer but the thing that people can never understand who've never done it is how hard it is like how how yeah. how intense the training is it's yeah. insane yeah. you know for for a, if you're 12 13 14 you know can you explain how it compares to i mean i know you've you've obviously done some fairly crazy training as a professional rugby player but as a swimmer it's uh, you know as a, as a kid swimmer it, it's pretty crazy yeah i trained more when i was 10 11 12 in a week than i ever did as a professional rugby player our training week was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, after school, 6 to 7. Uh, Friday, 7 to 9. Saturday, 9 to 11. Sunday, 8 to 10. And then um, 6 to 8, 
before school Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I used to always do the Tuesday, Wednesday. I didn't always do the Thursday. Um, so I did more hours uh, training when I was at 10, 11, 12 than I ever did as a, as a professional rugby player. So why did um, you, what were you getting out of it? Like, why, why did you do it? Um, I, I suppose, look, I, I, we were sent to lessons when I was four to learn how to swim. And before long, then you're swimming in a kind of a small little race. And, you know, when you're good at something, then you win a race, you want to stick at it. And that's, that's what I did. I mean, uh, I love the competitive side. I love the simplicity of it. You obviously did it. You, you know, you leave the, you leave the wall, uh, five seconds behind the guy in front of you and five seconds a guy ahead of the guy behind you. And when you turn at the wall, you see if you've gained on your man or the guy behind you has gained on you. And you get to the other end of the pool, you know, you, you've a clock straight in front of you and know exactly what time you did. For me, I suppose it was the simplicity of it. And, and it, it was, it's probably not as, it's probably not like rugby. It was very linear. You know, the harder you work, the more you train, the harder you work to train, the better you got. And it was almost as simple as that. Yeah. Um, um, the galas as well, as I'm sure you remember, were great fun. You yeah. head away to Dublin for on a Friday and come back on a Sunday evening and yeah. you've had unbelievable crack. It might have been more fun for you. If you were winning, uh, winning medals, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you you talk a bit about this the character formation, you know, when you're when you're a kid, and and how little things that adults would say to you that they probably don't even take any notice of, you kind of can remember years later as being important sort of moments. You know, what I was interested in was this: you have a story of of how when you went to the f- first uh, training session um, in the morning, you know, like the first five a.m. start. Yeah. And you were 10, I think. You'd asked to do this as opposed to being told this is what you have to do now. And so you got up, you went to wake up your dad. You said, Dad, um, I, I need to go swimming now. Then you felt incredibly tired and said, actually, I don't want to go. And then told your dad, I'm not going. Then lay back down in bed and started to feel really guilty about not going. And then got up and went. So what I wanted to know was where did that voice come from? This conscientious voice saying, You've got to go and do it. You can't just go back. To, I would have been out like a light. <laughs> so how did you get this idea? No, I, I must. I must go. I, must I do don't it. know. I I don't know. I, I don't think that's that big a deal. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are probably like that. They know they don't want to do something, and they know they should do it. Uh, and I probably gave myself a little bit of an out and said, you know, I'm only ten. I don't I actually don't need to be doing this. I can go back to bed. Then when I got up back to bed, I was kind of thinking, wouldn't it be better to be the only 10-year-old down in the pool doing doing morning training before school? So I went back out and, and, and dragged that up. But I, I don't know, I think I had a fairly normal kind of childhood. My mum was, my mum and dad were hard workers, big sports uh, childhood, you know, with non-stop sports around the house. And, uh, you know, being good at sports was was what we all wanted to be it didn't matter what the sport was whatever we took up we wanted to be good at it and I think we had a good work ethic from my parents kind of appreciated that if you want to be good at it you're going to have to spend a bit of time at it Um, and that's probably where it came from I don't think it's anything deeper than that Did they make you think that winning was really important? No they didn't at all actually you know at all at all my dad uh, my dad was incredibly supportive of my sport but he was more um, he was more, he'd give me lifts places and he'd, if there was a bit of volunteering needed to be done, he'd do that. But he never, 
think he was always hoping I'd go back into rugby, you know, because we, we were a rugby family. He was a big rugby man. And uh, but he was just kind of there helping out. I think mum and dad were really happy. If we were playing sports, you know, that was that was a result for them. It, you know, we could have been doing a whole lot worse, although there isn't a whole lot worse to do in Drumbenna, where I'm from. It's kind of <laughs> quite a country place. But uh, but that's that's all it was. That's all it was. Would you encourage kids to try all sports because there is this increasing idea that you should be specialising early that the, if you want to get to the very top you, you, when you're 8 9 you have to be starting all these getting all these hours in where do you fall on that oh yeah definitely to try everything try everything yeah right and and yeah one, 100% you know you find things you're good at you find you find things you like you you know you you meet loads of people you meet loads of different coaches some of the best people the best mentors I had as a young guy you know, I ended up playing rugby, but some of the best mentors I had were in swimming, um, were in were in my underage rugby, which I gave up when I was twelve, and then in golf, I had this great guy called John Gleason who owned a spar shop in town to give me a job. Um, he was just a great, you know, great guy to, you know, he, he to, to 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 advise and to encourage and to. I remember he 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 was big into practice in golf. You know, he he felt that. If you want to be good at golf, you can't be out playing 36 holes a day. You need to maybe play 18 and spend the rest of the day practicing. So he gave me a big, massive bag of practice balls mm-hmm. one day. Just, you know, he paid for himself. He bought them himself. He gave them to me. He had, a, he, had, he had kids himself, but he gave them to me. And uh, just gestures like that, I I really remember them and they stick out in my head. Um, Slimerick is a big sporting place, you know. Yeah. There's loads of people trying to pull you for different sports and even I see it now with, with, my, with my boy Paddy we're playing a bit of rugby and he's playing a bit of GA and I'm looking at the guys down at GA and thinking we got to get that guy and that guy and that guy down to <laughs> down to rugby training you know so uh, yeah so it's healthy yeah healthy try them all uh, you ended up with rugby I'm sure you're happy enough with your choice but it's inescapable how stressful it seemed to be for quite a long time and I don't know if this is right but the impression I got is almost the further the higher stakes the match was the higher level you got to the more stressful you found it like say the Lions tours in particular seem to be a bit of a nightmare in terms of preparing for games yeah I mean even that Lions tour in, in zero nine 9 was one of my it's one of my best memories of rugby but when I was in it you know I was I couldn't wait for it to be over and to know the score whether we'd won or lost and to be on holiday somewhere uh, um, but yeah, I just had a run. I went through a period where I just was putting way too much pressure on myself, um, and and because of that, then come the Friday night of a big game, you know, no one would be really able to tell. But I'd be quite, I'd be quite stressed about it. And I, I, it's like I got into the stage where I just wanted to know the score of the game. You know, I didn't even want to go out and enjoy the game and take part in the game or play in the game and test myself and test my skills. I just wanted to know the score. Yeah, and that's just. That's just the wrong attitude altogether, you know. And and in time, I completely changed that. I, and I know everyone talks about you have to focus on the process and all that, but it is it is it is the exact right thing to do to alleviate that. Then you you got to have focus on the process is only a one liner, you know. You need a whole set of tools and ways to actually do that that it doesn't that it doesn't stress you out for the game on Saturday. But when I started doing that and winning. Winning was still the be all and end all, and was still really important. But I just started telling myself it was a complete consequence of what I did during the week and what I did the day after and what I did the morning of. And 
I, I just started enjoying that part of it really and that's what I still have bad days where I struggled and course, and, yeah. and 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 um and 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 struggle to enjoy it and play it quite badly but I think everyone has a bit of that. Like going back to 2005, you took up smoking for some reason. <laughs> I didn't take it up. Uh <laughs> I I yeah. See we that that tour we roomed on our own. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have smoked. You know the way sometimes when you're young when people are out this is pre the smoking ban if someone had cigarettes and you, you you've had a few drinks I'd I'd end up having one. So, social smoker is yeah, the phrase that people yeah, use. Yeah. I hate even talking about it now in case there's a kid listening. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I did. I started actually, because we had rooms on our own. I'd never really roomed on my own up to that. And uh, I remember when I used to come home from training. It was just such a tough tour. Uh, I used to go up at a lovely, at actually a nice room in the Hilton in Auckland overlooking the bay. To sit there and have the odd cigarette. I don't know what I was doing to calm the nerves. That was it, or not so much the nerves, but just just to I don't know, just to relax. You know the way you see people. You know the way you see people doing that when they're stressed. But I presume they're addicted to smoking, so that's why they get relief. From did it. You, I don't know what I was doing. Did you fear discovery? I mean, what would have happened? Ah, I don't think anyone would have happened. You know, back then even there was there was plenty of smokers in the setup. Uh, guys like Phil Vickery uh, on the 2009 tour, uh, 2009 tour would would call into your room now and again and and roll one up and chat to you while he was rolling, <laughs> rolling, I mean, rolling. And Quinny was a smoker uh, as well, but uh, I think there's always been one or two social smokers then as well. What was the was there a light bulb moment that you talk about your transition from stressing too much to getting your getting it right towards the end of your career. Was there one person or one moment or, or one book you read? I know you're into reading up on uh, that kind of thing. There, there was a few things. Um, there was a few. Rob Penny, Rob Penny with Munster was uh, into a few things, good things around preparation. Really positive uh, guy as well. Yeah, really Rob positive guys, guy. Yeah. And he was into a few good things just uh, around preparation and you know, instead of what you're going to do on Saturday to be whoever you're playing, you know, you, you end up in these conversations about how you structure your week to make yourself a better player. Um, and that was probably the real, that was probably the real kind of, I don't think there was one light bulb sure. moment, but that's when it really started working for me. It might be hard to talk about it, Paul, because it's, uh, you know, it's still very raw over the last few months, but n- people won't be surprised to see that Anthony Foley came, comes across as a completely legendary figure in the book, you know, from from the point that you, you're there early on and you're top, it's sitting on the bus on the way to a Munster match. Once I wrote my notebook, Axel has lost <laughs> respect for you. I went on the page with a massive desire to be a standout player, so that Anthony Foley would think more of, more of you. I think that shows you the status that you would have had him in. That this was your yeah. motivating factor. Well, look, I suppose if you have any insecurities, uh, Axel wouldn't be mad about alleviating them. Or, or you know, he's a very quiet guy. Um, he wouldn't say a lot to you, um, and I remember in those. I remember in those games. I remember I was always playing well. If if Axel was coming over, not asking me for advice, but running things by me, or during the week he was running things by me. I knew, you know, if like because he was incredibly bright uh, about rugby and and about doing the simple things that were required to win a game of the weekend. And and if Axel was asking you your opinion and stuff, you were probably could probably consider yourself a little bit bright in terms of rugby yourself. So I remember that I remember that week because I remember chatting and chatting to someone about it. I remember he didn't chat to me a whole lot, and I remember thinking, 
crikey, you know, he thinks I'm playing bad and I'm 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 bluffing here a bit or something. And I just went out to absolutely uh, uh, prove myself to him. But that's the kind of little silly stuff I used to do. I think you know very often, and and rugby has changed. But back then, rugby, the, the big game on Saturday was all about high emotion, high passion. You know, and that leads to inconsistency. It gets you right for for a big day might get you right the week after, but you can only maintain it for so long. Um, and and that's something I probably struggled with then. Was yeah. was, And that's why I struggle sometimes to enjoy those big, big games because I was kind of... Everything was about the emotion of the occasion rather than being technically as correct as I could. You took over from Foley as captain. Yeah. Did... Was there... I know you found that difficult early on in your captaincy... Would you have bounced stuff off Axel, or was it very much the thing to do here is to let you take it on? And he he had his style, and you have to forge your own way. Yeah, I was different, different to Axel. Um, you know, I, I I would have been, you know, I would have been big into training and big into fitness and that. He he would have been the same, but probably not as much so. Um, and he just, I think some people are real natural captains. He he just had an aura about him. You know, as I said before, he didn't say a lot, he didn't speak a lot, but when he did, he was, uh, it counted and, and, and we really listened. And even, I think, I probably took it a little bit too early because I think we actually worked really well together. You know, I I used to be on top of people quite a lot and then he could pick and choose his moments. And yeah. uh, and I think that worked really well that year in, in, in 2006. Good cop, bad cop routine in a way. Yeah, I don't know if it was a good cop, bad cop, but... Uh, you know, I I I'd always be, I'd always have plenty to say. I'd always be chatting to people and canvassing opinion and 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 that kind of stuff. And I was I wouldn't say I was able to report back to him, but I was able to distill it down and, you know, I suppose chat to him about things then. And he could pick and choose his moments then. And when he spoke, you know, he grew up playing under under Mick Galway for a long time and Shannon, uh, who who's a great guy as well. So when he spoke in the dressing room in Munster. Uh, you know, it had massive, it had a profound effect on 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 the people around him. Uh, how did you find that that week? The tribute, obviously, at uh, the match against Glasgow at Tom and Park was amazing. You know, it just seemed to be an, an unbelievable event and a, a very fitting way to mark. I don't know. I, I'm sure nobody really knew exactly what what way to go about. It's just it still is such a shock. But it it seemed to be a, a certainly a beautiful tribute on that day. Yeah, the tribute was was how the guys played played. You know, you can't. I think rugby fans everywhere struggle with marketing or struggle with staged uh, things that happen. So what happened that day uh, with the way the boys played, first of all, um, you know, with, with 14 men um, was incredible. But then what happened afterwards with his kids, mm. um, with the boys singing the song on the halfway line, you know, that would have just all happened by accident, I'm sure. Um, and I just thought it was incredible. And for people that were there, I don't know if we win anything this year, but for people that was there, that was an, an amazing day. Mick Galway spoke uh, on TV at the time about hoping that this would be the start of a, a reconnect. I'm kind of using that word myself, but that it tapped into what all you guys contributed, uh, you know, chiefly Anthony Foley and so many others, to build this this thing. 
but that fans have drifted away, there hasn't been success as such, and that maybe an occasion like that will will galvanise people to a certain extent. It certainly seems that you know, on the pitch there have been good performances since then. Would you share that optimism that that people that that there's something that there's these something's been forged out. It's so strong. And it's worth tapping back into and people will actually drive it on from here. Yeah, I'd be optimistic for it um, and I'd be hopeful that it happen. I, I think the way players connect with supporters now has completely changed to the way I started out. You know, you, 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 you actually could spend a lot of time with supporters having a few drinks or doing whatever it was when I started out because there was no camera phones. You didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't stand there. There wouldn't be people standing there waiting to take a photo of you. If you were in a conversation with someone, you ended up chatting to them for a good while. You ended up, you know, once the Munster rugby talk was over, you actually ended up getting to know them some bit or whatever, right. you know. So so the way we connect with supporters now has really, really changed. And a lot of it is through social media. And uh, um, I just don't think it's the same connection as as, as used to be there. Um, but I do think that they... I, I think I think that day was so kind of natural um, um, that that it was, it'll be a special day forever and you know it's up to it's up to Munster supporters to capitalise on it it's up to the Munster players now to capitalise on, on it as well um, you know 26,000 is, is a very big stadium it's always going to be very difficult to fill it um, but I don't think Munster supporters necessarily want to come and and, uh, and to see Munster scoring four spectacular tries. They just want to see a certain level of intensity and a certain level of, um, um, I don't know, execution that that they can identify with. I'm, I'm rambling on here again now, but I, I, I think that that's what they saw that day and that's yeah. what they've seen now in the last four weeks. You know, Munster have probably played, in the last four weeks, I think we were a far better team than Ospreys, but we've probably played three teams that were better than us in the Maoris and Ulster and Glasgow and we've beaten three of them. Yeah. Um, that kind of That kind of effort and the kind of, I suppose the tactical cleverness that would have been there in Dickey's era, that's what really people identified with first uh, with Munster and uh, hopefully we can continue it now. What are your thoughts on Saturday? Do we is it putting too much pressure on ourselves as a as a country as a team to say that we have to win this match against Australia for the series to be a success? No, you don't have to win anything. Uh, you know, um, I think we need a another big performance. That's that's what we need. Um, um, uh, that's one of the really things I, w- I was happy with in the New Zealand game. The second New Zealand game is obviously we didn't win it, but I thought it was a really big performance by Ireland. A big performance, you know. We were, ta- we were Johnny was gone early, Robbie Henshaw was gone early, um, and they'd be a big part of everything Ireland does for the last three years under 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 Joe. Um, so I thought it was a really, really big performance. So I think it's important for us to get the same again. I, I think you're never confident of winning. You're never confident of winning when you play Australia in particular, and I think they're building towards something big again. But you're confident with this team that we'll always get a seriously clever, disciplined performance, and I think that's the most important thing. Well, Paul, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I have to say, I, I've never regretted more not having a swimming pool installed in this office because I just, <laughs> just the thoughts of the two of you going head to head filled me you, with excitement. Are you, are you, do you do any swimming these days? Have you gone back to it? No. No? no you're not no. interested in the open water stuff? You could swim Galway Bay or something like that? Maybe in time. Maybe in time. Most rugby players go through this where they end up cycling and yeah. all this kind of stuff. So maybe in time, but nothing so far either. Paul, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mel. <laughs> cheers, cheers. Thanks. 
to Ryan Trotty getting for the try on the near side of the pitch. Oh, yeah, I don't believe it. Ryan Trotty scores! Oh, my goodness! They've managed it. It's 22 each. Have you got a chance? Uh, no. No, uh, I genuinely would be happy with a 20-point differential. What? I think, I think that would be a success, yeah. Losing by 20 points would be a success? Yeah. Come on. Losing by 20 points would be a success? Yeah. Come on. Still running with the ball, Zebo in a bit of space, and there's plenty of room too. All Blacks flying back in defence. Off it goes to Julian Savier, and he can't go anywhere. Five metres scrum. Oh, what a play from Ireland! This is it, really. This is it for Ireland. They can put this in this one out of reach. I don't expect. I do not expect them unless they are demanded to by the referee to release this ball from the scrum. Less than five minutes. Here's Heaslip. Well, he picks it up quickly, and off he goes. Drops it off the head. conversion for Joey Carberry to make his contribution on debut. All Blacks charge. Up go the flags. This is history in the making and they are really good for an island. They deserve this. And what a night it's going to be. What a triumph it is for Joe Smith. Kiwi boy who's engineered some real history. Into the grandstand it goes. Well, there you go, Paul O'Connell. How great was that to have him in studio and speaking so well? Screw you, Mark Maron, with your Barack Obama in your garage. We've mm. had Paul O'Connell in our studio, Ken. Albeit struggling a little bit with the rather low frames of the doors. Kind of low ceilings, low frames. He cracked his head coming in here, I'm not going to lie. I mean, we're we're in a kind of a Georgian house here. Owen. I, I don't know when this house was built, but I'm guessing not before... Or not after, not later than 1800, probably a good bit earlier than that. And I guess the people must have been much smaller. Definitely smaller than Paul O'Connell. That's, well, that door there, I keep, I've, I've lost a lot of neurons to that door frame. Ken, even I have, I, I've kind of scraped my head on it. So, I haven't hit so, my whole head. So, it's listener, a, you can see <laughs> we're practically crawling in here uh, through, through that space. Uh, but he did crack his head. Luckily, no blood. And uh, he, was, he was able to, you know, do the... I do, I, I, I just want to... Yes. Point out, by the way, mm-hmm. that I mentioned Alan Ferns. I didn't give him much detail other than to say that I had a fight with him. I want to point out, he was an excellent swimmer, strong boy. Well, he must have been if Paul could remember him. Yeah, I'd say he was. I'd say he was vying with Paul. I think they did a bit of they did a bit of backstroke. I know Alan Ferns used to. I'm not sure I ever beat him on, and I'm not sure he was ever aware that he was racing me. <laughs> no, he's never heard of you. It was you a rivalry on that level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, but uh, but well well done, Alan. I always respected you as a swimmer. <laughs> Paul's book, The Battle, is busy winning awards at the moment. As many as awards as the Second Captain Sports Annual Volume 2, Ken? Yeah, yeah, more awards than the Second Captain Sports Annual well, Volume 2. Well, it's all two. politics, isn't it? Yeah, it's all politics. But that's also a fine, fine 
uh, volume. It's probably my favorite volume of the two we've put out so far, and it's available to purchase on secondcaptains.com <laughs> awards. Who needs them? Didn't even get nominated in the journalist awards. The Ireland oh, team has geez. been named for Saturday, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Rob Kearney and CJ Stander have come through their return to play protocols. <laughs> Um, suffered suspected concussions against New Zealand. So they're playing against Australia. The big surprise, or I suppose the big selection, is that Keith Earls uh, is on the wing instead of Simon Zebo. Uh, Zebo done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, he goes to the bench. And um, Gary Ringrose maintains his place in the centre. So he's playing at first centre, number 12, with Jared Payne at 13. So uh, that reshuffled back line that, that came about in the New Zealand game carries on. And uh, Joe Schmidt said that Gary Ringrose was selected really on his performance in that New Zealand game. So they got to have a really good look at him uh, in a really high-class game. So he's proven himself. And uh, Paddy Jackson's at 10. Uh, there was no real choice to be made there, I suppose, between himself and Carberry, who's only just broken through into provincial rugby, never mind international rugby. But uh, Joe was asked about... You know the structure of the back line. You would have noticed this is like losing Henshaw and Sexton. Like it's kind of it's incredibly unlucky. And then for Jackson to come in against a brilliant New Zealand defence, it's easily the toughest defence that Paddy Jackson's faced in his career, internationally or provincial level. But I thought that the team lacked structure, and Paddy Jackson reacted to that defence. He sort of lost his composure at times. He kept running back up into the pack, and it'll be interesting to see what Czech and Australia do. They'll have absolutely watched that game. This is a massive game for Paddy Jackson. The way he reacts to Australian defence could define the rest of his international career. Are you confident? I am, actually. Well, you are confident? As posted there, I mean, Ireland are really consistent. They put together six good performances in a row, which you could, it's almost never happened to us. Mm. We haven't won all those games. They lost New Zealand, they lost twice against South Africa. You know, Canada is one of those games. But if we can play well again, seven games in a row at a really high level... That would be, for me, almost as encouraging as anything Ireland have done in the past. Africa playing well. I'm asking you, are we going to win the games? So yeah, I think we're going to win as oh, well. Oh, well, that's... that's Although every time, <laughs> every time you think Australia are struggling and then you see their starting 15, yeah. Israel Folau and the rest, it's... Yeah, I don't think Australia will be bad, but no. hopefully we can... We, we, won't, we won't hammer them. <laughs> yeah. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is a good one. It's out now. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shorty man? Well, last week, Daniel Taylor uh, did an interview with Andy Woodward, former crew player, uh, played for some other clubs as well, but who uh, told... Daniel, the story of his uh, time being abused by a coach uh, when he back when he was a kid at Crew, mm. and uh, had this you know, pretty harrowing story of sexual abuse. Since when we've seen various other players come forward, Paul Stewart, the former Tottenham, Liverpool, Man City player, David White, former Manchester City striker, um, and I guess we're probably going to see more as well. Um, so we were talking to Richard Seidler about that story and how um, how this something like this could happen at a football club. All right, well, uh, according to the hype, Katie Taylor is going to do for women's professional boxing what she did for the amateur game by revolutionising the sport and taking it to the masses. The only problem being that nobody, at least in Ireland, really seems to know where the sport is at. Nobody that is except the lady in studio with me now, Christina McMahon. Thanks for popping in. Thank you very much for having me. You've actually been in the ring with Katie's opponent. I have. Uh, 2013, I think she was my fifth fight. Um, She was just one of the opponents that was brought in at the time. 
uh, to help the ranking scales. Um, I moved up a weight and she moved down a weight. So we actually fought at a stone lighter right. than what Katie's going to be fighting her at on Saturday. And you beat her, we should say. Yeah, we had a good out fight and yes, I did beat her and I, bought, I, I did win clearly. And you're, so you expect Katie to be okay? I think that Katie would be strong. Yeah. Because this girl can fight low and fight heavier. And um, even though the, her record shows that she's experienced, um, her rankings are 38 in the world and a number 11 in Europe. So um, on a ranking scale, according to BoxRec.com, um, she wouldn't be up there just yet. Right. Take us back to your own background now. Kickboxing is where you you kind of really... Uh, got into high level sport yeah I suppose while Katie was boxing I was kickboxing I wasn't even in the sport of boxing um, very much concentrating on uh, the WACO championships is what my background is Um I represented Ireland for 12 years and 24 gold medals. Um, once I got into it, I suppose, and got to the top, it was all about trying to stay at the top. Um, there's three different disciplines in kickboxing. And uh, on the third one, which is the full contact, which is the one I really, really loved, um, I wanted to be a better boxer to improve the skill in the ring. And I fought a lot of Russians and Polish and Hungarians that were very good boxers. So I came home and um, I suppose my coach, my husband, Frick, was really recommending that I improved in boxing skill. And he's a martial arts background and he took me to a club to try and get better at boxing. Uh, and th- that's where it started. That's a big move, though, because as you said, you won a load of medals in kickboxing, including mm-hmm. the world championship. We, mm-hmm. uh, so you got to that level, but obviously decided, OK, I've done all I can do in this sport. I'm going to try boxing. Yeah, well, now when I did do the boxing, it helped me and uh, I suppose I've taken a world medal at all three disciplines and the full contact being the one that was only exploring before I finished, Mm. um, the boxing would have helped that. So uh, there's no doubt it was going the right direction. But it was just, uh, I was getting older and I'd been done that and it was just nice to leave the feet on the ground and just concentrate (laughs) on the hands. So uh, yeah, it was a wee bit of a wind down, which I'm sure a boxer wouldn't like to hear. But to me it was at the time because because the energy you use kicking was serious and uh, it was just a new sport and a little bit like Katie Taylor now going for the pro game. It's a new challenge. You're at the bottom. And uh, I like the idea that being at the bottom of a new sport. And not even being at the bottom, being the only one doing it really. Was there anyone you could talk to? Was there any, any lead that you were following in this? Well, I started with the amateur game actually, believe it or not, and uh, it was the first time actually in Irish history that an Irish team was put together Um it was a development squad. Ten of us were put together after I joined it. And uh, Katie was on that team. Uh, Kelly Harrington that took home a silver medal. Sinead Cavanagh that's gone into mixed martial arts. We have a nice wee background that we all came from. Um, and we've actually, a lot of us are still fighting, believe it or not. Um, and I, I suppose that's nice to see the progress of other females in Ireland too, that we're only starting to hear the names now. But yet in 2006, we were all training together as part of a development squad. Um, so that's something to be very proud of but um, I fought fought as an amateur and through that um, I actually met Katie Taylor's dad he was over the team and Pat Ryan who's president of the association Um, Anya Norman was the lady involved at the time and um, they got us two international fights I fought against um, the British champion Mm -hmm. Tina Dell and then I fought the Swedish champion and Jennifer Hardings Um, the break hard for me was I'd only started exploring sport and I was winning and I hadn't lost any fights including an all Ireland um, uh, she, <laughs> I beat her in February and I turned 35 in June 
um, I was told then I couldn't travel with any team because I was over the age of 35. Right, there was an age limit. There was, in, in, yeah, for amateur, amateur boxers boxing. at the time. Yes, okay. yeah, which I didn't know until I was in it. Right. Um, and that girl went out and won the Europeans on the same year in September. So that was kind of a heartbreak as well. It's another setback. You're kind of going, oh my God, I'm at the start of a new sport. I'm actually winning quite easy. Yeah. And uh, you're telling me I can't fight because of my age. <laughs> so... Um, we had two choices. Do I go back kickboxing or um, and find another goal in it? Or do I go pro? And my uh, kickboxing Irish coach at the time, Jimmy Upton and his wife were like, why don't you try the pro game? And I was like, and where would you start? Yeah. So they introduced me to Philip Sutcliffe in Dublin. And Philip Sutcliffe was the first one to give me, um, to, to get me licensed. And I'm the first Irish woman to be licensed as a pro. Um Yes. So very much a trailblazer in the professional game. Yes. That's, that's really... Totally the starting point. Uh, did, what did people say to you when they, you were having chit-chat you know, just with anybody and they said, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a professional boxer. <laughs> uh, particularly maybe in the early days before Katie, uh, uh, before everyone got to know Katie as an amateur. Sure. Um, I would have been a bit nutty, I suppose. Um, what was I looking for in life was what they'd really want to know. Right. Uh, what was missing that you had to be a boxer? <laughs> <laughs> Are you not happily married, or do you not want children? Something, uh, something gone terribly wrong here. Yeah, it was. It was definitely. What, was there? Was there that though? Did did people say, "Hang on, you're, you're certainly a, did. Yeah. You're a woman in your thirties, whatever. You should be yeah. doing other things yeah. with your life." Oh, people had no problem insulting you. Right. No problem telling you how bad you look, or how worn out you look, how how um, how that sport's killing you. <laughs> and these are um, friends or or oh both. Um, I'm in the fitness industry. I okay. I work. Um, I do, I'm not a full time um, athlete. Couldn't afford to be. And um, I teach tra- I teach fitness to a lot of people. And it was around the leisure centre that I got plenty of people had no problem coming over a counter and asking me Sorry. why I did what I did. <laughs> um, did you have an answer for them, or did you just think, listen? If you're even bothering asking me, there's no point engaging in conversation. Oh, I did. I spent my time trying to explain myself like a big Egypt. Uh, yeah. Um, I'd always tried to explain it from the start to the end and I realised it didn't really matter what you said. So I, I matured and um, I just said, oh, they'll see someday. And I started getting confident in myself and my husband just told me to stop listening to people and... I, I actually took that advice, but it took me a long time. I was sensitive to people. I was very, um, I cared what people thought. Um, and I grew up then in my 30s. So The high point of your career, Christina, as a professional boxer, I think is a fight in Zambia yes. last year. Can you yes. tell us a bit about that? Well, the fight in Zambia kind of came out of, I suppose, the blue for the public because uh, nobody knew of Christina McMahon before that. Um I was very confident that I would win a world title in professional boxing. The hardest part for me was to make the decision to do it, knowing that I'd do 10 rounds, uh, no head guard, lesser gloves. That was my biggest decision in my life. And when I made that decision with my husband and very much with him, um, we knew we'd win a world title. Now, um, my husband, who's my coach, always said, keep yourself under the radar. They won't pick you if they think you're a threat. Um, I don't have the big promoter or the big backing and uh, I need to not be a threat and uh, you wouldn't have fought, found me on YouTube you don't find any of my kickboxing fights uh, you might see me lining up but you don't see the actual fight there's nothing there So you're, that um, was kind of deli- partly deliberate? It was deliberate Just it was a low profile. I wanted to stay under the limelight believe it or not I loved fighting I did it as a passion I enjoyed it I enjoyed winning and I enjoyed going to work the next day and forgetting about it so I had just a bit of a different personality with a different outcome 
outset. Um, went to Africa, looking forward to being the underdog. I was uh, told I could be her mother. Uh, got <laughs> plenty of uh, abuse. Did two TV programs over the, there. Um, they thought they'd beat me down. Went into the studio, asked how long would I be, and I was told I'd be an hour. And people can ring in from all over Africa. So this was very interesting. I'm sitting on TV, and those priests ringing in, wishing the Irish girl good luck. But we're here for Catching Fury, their sensation of Africa. Um, the age came up many, many times in the interview, but by the time I was finished answering them and I suppose a bit giddy and confident, um, they never mentioned it at the press conference. I think I was getting to her rather than her getting to me. So uh, I think we started winning the, the argument about the age thing. Um, women in Africa started following me. They Brilliant. were delighted to hear this woman was t- a white woman, 42 or 41 as I was at the time, was over here uh, talking about age not being a problem. Um, it started lifting uh, people's minds and a lot more came to the fight, not because it's boxing, because I want to see how would this 41-year-old do with a 23-year-old? <laughs> so 30 million watched the fight. What? Yes, that's true. Um, I was better known in Africa. Um, than I was in it's Ireland. It's unbelievable. Yes. So did you stay, did you stay long after? after We're only there for the next the day. Acclaim, just a day after. We're there for the next day, but yeah. uh, we had a guy with us in our corner called Anthony Dorn. Anthony Dorn's a Dublin guy here. He boxes and he got in touch with me. Um, his mum is from Zambia and Anthony was there for a while after me and they were selling the, the DVDs on the street. <laughs> um, the, the DVDs of Catching Fury versus Christina McMahon. Brilliant. So um, they made a lot of money after I left on posters and DVDs. Speaking of making money, uh, have you been able to make a living from it? Can you be a full-time professional female boxer? I personally didn't make a living. Um, I had to go to work. Uh, There's no backing for a pro. When you decide to go pro, you're on your own. Unless, again, you have the likes of maybe somebody, a a management deal. Mm. I didn't have a management deal. My husband was my manager. And as you know, when you travel, it's it's too... financial situations coming out of the one house because there's two of us in it and the one house so when he's coaching me he wasn't working so that was very difficult right. and we made a decision now if we're going to do this let's let's do this um money didn't drive me by any means um but those times where it, it was it was uncomfortable yeah the, the I saw Dennis Walsh in the Sunday Times this week mentioning your name and saying Christine McMahon has endured a catalog of hor- horrific experiences mm. for little or no gain that's it would you agree I've no regrets in anything I've done. Um, it has made me a very, very strong person. It's made me very, very wise to life and it's made me very wise to um, myself. Um, I don't actually have regret. This was my road and it's a road I had to live. And um, I think I'm going to come out better out of it in the end for a lot of different reasons. Um I'll make my money when I'm finished, maybe when I can concentrate on my profile through my work. And, uh, you know, I, I do talks in schools and stuff like that. And I enjoy all that. What would the experiences be that he was talking about, the uh, horrific experiences? Well, Mexico was the latest one. And as we know, I had an awful problem with Mexico. And, and at the moment, it's still in an ongoing debate. Um, I think the Mexicans maybe felt they, they got the better of the thing. But I, I think there's a bit of talk going on at the moment. Okay, and this I is think people might see something new happening very soon. Um, just for people who aren't familiar with it, this yes. is a, a massive fight you had against yes. Zelina Munoz, if I have the yes. pronunciation yes. right. A fight you were, uh, you were t- taking her on in her hometown for yes. the world title. And there were... It's safe to say there was a bit of controversy around it? Yeah, well, I, 
anyone who knows me very well would know that I don't like to use the word robbery. I, I had robberies in my kickboxing career, never came home and shouted about it because nobody was there to watch. Then therefore you're a whinger, you're a liar. Um, doesn't do anything for your personality. But um, I won the fight and I I know I won the fight. And uh, the Mexicans knew I won the fight and the people who were in this Quara city, which is on the border of El Paso, um, they threw in their, their beer cups and everything into the ring when I was finishing booed. So um, they knew it. They, people don't like to see cheating. I don't. I don't know even if it's just boxing. It's people just don't like to see it in in, in any state. Yeah. So um, yes, I I felt cheated on, but it was the drug testing that was the problem. Um, I wasn't drug tested, uh, and they weren't drug testing. We'd signed for it, and um, there was a few little. Um, problems there that rules weren't abided by um, when I was ready to go out to the changing rooms out of the changing rooms into the fight a new pair of gloves was hanging on the the, the guy's arms and uh, we were like where'd those gloves come from because anybody well people who don't know professional boxing when you go to your rules meeting, which there was no rules meeting, by the way, <laughs> when you go to your rules meeting at the at the weigh-in, you're handed two pairs of new gloves and each fighter picks their gloves. Yeah. Then they're initialed and taken off you until the fight. Um, I was handed mine in the hotel between a blue and a white pair and all of a sudden, just before the match, there was a red pair with lovely silver lining. <laughs> so we copped the gloves, but Jimmy Upton, my coach, copped. There was a the smell of the gloves. Um, it was like Deep Heat or Tiger Bam was on the gloves um, they were set up for uh, to sting the eyes out of my head and we know that because Jimmy wet his knuckles and put the um, sorry wet the, the knuckle of the glove yeah. and put it in his own eye and the stung the eye out of his head as we were speaking Right. and um, we asked for the gloves to be changed and you're entitled to them being changed and they weren't changed so the Irish team had to wipe the gloves and make sure they were okay the referee didn't know at this stage and the referee should have been there and in the ring he couldn't understand why Frick my husband kept saying check the gloves check mm. the gloves so um, he denies anything happened but he actually wasn't there so uh, we've proof of that because Carol Upton, uh, Jimmy's wife, was in the change room and was videoing everything. So we've it all on camera. This sounds incredibly like the conversation I had with Andy Lee after he fought Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. in El Paso, actually. Really? He had a lot of issues. A lot yes. of it was around drug testing, actually, as well. There was yes. there were some shenanigans around that. Yes. The, the, I think they managed, I think the, the ropes were softer than they should have been. There seems to be all these, I was about to say little things, they're not, they're massive things that you have to try they're to overcome. They're massive things um, because safety, you should have to be safe at all times. Um, we take big risks as fighters getting in there. Um, we take massive risks actually and the last thing you want is outer risks that you don't have to think about mm. um, being done on purpose and uh, you know, they said that uh, the Mexicans said it was a once-off um, problem, was a once-off mistake but two other boxers that I know of have come forward and said they weren't drug tested either. Okay. Um, you know, it just questions uh, the 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 idea of a world champion where they are in the game. And um, this girl was heading for her tent world championship. Uh, she wants to win the diamond world championship, and I was on that road, and I was got ready to stop her on her eight fight, and that wasn't going to happen at any stage. So. Uh, they didn't and they didn't give me the fight I'm right in saying Christina that not only did they not give you the fight mm. they suspended you the WBC suspended you yeah well I was bold because I spoke out and <laughs> <laughs> um, I was promised a rematch on the basis of the rules being broke Um there was meant to be a lot done and we were promised a lot of things a lot of uh, conversations in actual fact the president of the association from Mexico 
you know, even uh, just the two days before the suspension was on a phone call to me, rang me from away in over in Stockholm and was on the phone from, to me for four hours. Um, I couldn't understand why anybody wanted to talk to me for four hours if there's no problem. Suspend me if you want to suspend me and then explain to me why you're suspending me. I broke the code of ethics and I spoke out and the day I spoke out was the day I watched Michael Conlon in the Olympics and I cried solid tears watching him and it wasn't just for Michael being honest even though it was tough. I cried because the first time I broke down about my fight. And that's when you spoke out after yeah. that. You saw yeah. what happened to Conor. I stayed strong until Michael. Me. I could see physically what the referee was doing after the first round of Michael Conlon's fight. I knew he's been robbed, and I knew it very clearly. Um, I knew it was a setup plan, and I didn't even know the background information. I just could see it physically, and the reason I could see it is because I knew what had happened to me, and it brought back a serious amount of um, hardship. And I cried solid tears during that fight, and I wasn't the better of it for two days. Uh, Northern Sound then asked me for an interview and I told the story. You told the story, got suspended, but you think that there's a way back? You, you said I there, do. I feel there should be a way back. I think they broke five of their own code of ethics and I'm fighting it at the so moment. So you're still fighting it? Absolutely. There's only so much you could be saying about an ongoing yes, fight, but it's, yes, it's, uh, yes. you're confident that... I'm confident that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> so that kind of brings us up. That, but for, there's a, that's a lot to deal with, first, firstly. But then you get the good news that you're going to be involved in, I think it was going to be the first ever professional world title fight, yeah. in a, f- a female world title fight in Ireland. This is under the auspices of the WBA. That's right. That was all set up until very recently. Well, the funny thing about that is that I got the opportunity through Frank Stacey and fair play to him as a promoter that's not um, probably doing a lot of promotion, but it's only starting off. And he he met me years ago and he wanted to give me the opportunity. He saw me fight. He knows what what I've been through. I haven't even mentioned the American story that is more horrendous than Mexico. But cut a long story short, I got this opportunity. And would you believe it? I'm three weeks knowing I have this fight before I ever knew it was making history or that it was the first women's boxing match in Ireland. It was the last thing on my mind. What my mind was, I wanted to get back in and fight. Um, I'm a fighter and I'm not finished and I wanted to do it. And uh, I wouldn't care whether, you know, where it was or what it was. Um, again, I'm not a limelighter. I'm not in it for to impress the public. I'm in it because I I have a I'm on a mission myself, and uh, I have chapters to close. And um, I think justice has to prevail. And I, I'm I'm after justice. I am win, lose or draw. For me, I want to see a fair fight so that I can continue coaching women in the future. Um, I coach children, and I mean this from the heart. I don't want to stand up there and coach them and know mm. that they're not treated fairly. And I had I had the reins to do something about it, and I did nothing. So that makes me the same as everyone else. And I'm just trying to do something right. What happened to that fight that was cancelled? The, World the girl fight? pulled out. Um, she pulled out uh, last week uh, with two and a half weeks to go. Um, they didn't tell me. My husband was trying to keep it from me so that I wouldn't affect my training. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, that later that evening he said be the text instead of someone else <laughs> so being in a kind of a, an uproar of trying to sort something out he, he, he wrote the flyweight is vacant so he yeah. was in negotiations with WBA to fight at a lower weight um, and then he was going to tell me I'd have to go lower down um, but he had to tell me sooner than he thought um, got my head around that got excited again I said right we'll make the weight we're not that far off you just have to be a bit more disciplined and um, 
then that fell through. There's a kind of a, there's a rule to sanctioning um, fighters. You have to be inside the top 10 and you have to have a certain amount of ranking points. And uh, the girls that were sanctioned as the flyweight, uh, none of them were willing to take the fight at that notice. Um, and other girls were. So even some of them have beaten those sanctioned girls, but um, unfortunately that didn't work out. But we were offered then the, the Super Bantamweight uh, Interim World Title. That's the weight and the title that I won in Africa only by WBC. And um, I wasn't very excited about it, but I thought there's a show here. There's people got me to this place. Uh, Frank Stacey has put money on the table for this. Uh, Sky was coming on board. The media have got behind me. It doesn't matter what I think now about who the fighter is or what the fight is. I need to fight and I need to not let people down. So got my head around that. Within 24 hours, better news came. The world champion at WBA um, will take the fight. She has to defend her title by a certain amount of time. And this is an opportunity she'll take. So obviously she was getting ready for something anyway. And uh, I got very excited about that. And then two hours later, the show was off. Oh. <laughs> so I had four days of trauma. <laughs> uh, yeah, and heartbreak for it heartbreak. not happening. You, you only yeah. touched on the New York yeah. incident. Yeah. Uh, can you maybe expand a little bit that this is late last year? Yeah. New York, I was heading to New York uh, to fight Alicia Ashley. I was given two choices by WBC. I was asked to rematch the African girl, Catherine Fury, or to uh, fight Alicia Ashley in America. We couldn't afford the fight at the time to rematch Catherine Fury. And obviously, if you're going to rematch somebody, you wanted to have it in your home. You're after going to her home. Um, So there was a delay on trying to organise that or get anybody backing us for that. Again, I'm not that known. Um... We we chose the fight with Alicia Ashley for two reasons. It is two weights above me. It's super bantamweight. Um, I took it because it was in New York. It was the main event. Uh, Alicia Ashley is somebody I look up to as a fighter, believe it or not. Uh, she's older than me and she's an amazing athlete. And I thought, you know what? Nothing to lose here. Take the fight. Um, on the 14th or 15th of September when I was ready to fight and I was heading away the week before it, they cancelled it on the day that I had a fees in my hand. Uh, told, don't know whether you're fighting next week or a month later. Um, very hard to get ready again or to tape or, or to, you don't know where you are with it. Um, that was fine. We we knew we had medicals to do. We To be a professional boxer, by the way, you have to have a licence and you have to have a certain amount of medicals done. In America, in the New York State Athletic, they have extra medicals you have to do. We couldn't get the uh, promoter to get those medicals to us. And because of the first trip that we were going on, we would have had time to get those. But the second time the fight came around, we wouldn't have. So we were trying to get them done in Ireland. The New York State released the medicals we had to do and we had a week to get them done. And I was blood tested from top to bottom. I had um, eye tests, bigger than eye tests. It was just, the detailed test was unreal. And it's trying to get specialists with a week's notice is, is the difficult part. So it was quite a stressful week. We still didn't know what flight we were going on. We didn't know whether we were going to be there for a week or five days beforehand. The fight was on a Thursday and we were being flown on a Sunday. I arrive in New York on Sunday night. I'm told we're going for medicals on Monday morning. We were told uh, you're going to see the medical doctor. We thought that was just, you know, like at, a, at the way and you meet the medical doctor. Yeah, see like everything routine there. sort Absolutely. of check, yeah. But it wasn't. It was... Um, test in my mind how many animals I can talk to <laughs> mention in a minute it, it was just mind games from start to finish um, failed me on that um, 
we're on back on the way back into the city when we're told we had needed a, a PTT test, um, we could prove we got it done and with their go ahead. And we were told, no, uh, the PTT is different in Europe than it is in America. And if you don't come back and do a blood test, you don't fight. Now, that was just the start. Mm. I had four days there, three of them, two of them I spent in hospital from nine o'clock to seven o'clock in and out of hospitals getting tests. Once they'd one done, they got me to do another. But what the heartbreak was... Um, when the doctor said uh, that he failed me and he'd like another um, MRI scan, we thought he meant an MRI scan. But the email said a PET scan and I didn't know what a PET scan was. And my husband didn't want to scare me because the email said, if you don't do the PET scan, you don't fight. And this is the day before the, the, the fight. And I went in and um, I was injected with radioactive glucose uh, for 20 minutes. And um, I was handed a letter that my husband kept from me when I walked out and it was don't be near a woman 24 hours pregnant and you may not get through the scan at the airport on the way home. So I fought a 10 round world title main event in New York, two weights above myself on a high. And when I say a high, anybody that had a PET scan will know when you're injected radioactive glucose, you're full of radiation, you're full of glucose. I was kind of in nice form, kind of relaxed form. They took every ounce of ego and aggression out of me. And I was just like, a, I, f- I fell twice in the ring. One of them, they call it a knockdown, and wasn't always balanced. And uh, it was heartbreaking that anybody can touch your body or uh, put you to the pin of your collar. And to be very honest, if I had money behind me, I would have stood up and left it and I wouldn't have fought. But I hadn't and I owed the money to somebody for training and I had to fight. And that was the horrible, the horrible part of professional boxing for me, my, it, my low. It does sound like, I mean, the, the, as Dennis Walsh called it, a catalogue of horrific experiences yeah. over, over the last mm. year or so, maybe since Zambia and, yeah. and since that great success. Are you, are you keeping the head about it? Are you, you talk about being on a mission and wanting to... Yeah win a world title to prove that you can do it to prove that it can be mm. done uh, mm. you know, th- through clean means can you keep can you keep positive about that or are you disillusioned with the whole thing um, after America I was very disillusioned I think if you don't break at that stage if, if everything has happened over the last while even the fight off of this America's the one that probably broke me the most even more than Mexico what happened in Mexico it did from the point of view that not about the fight but the fact that like, was a doctor paid off? Was what, what was happening that somebody believed that you have cancer in your system or you have a disease in your system? It was, it was the cruel side of it behind, your, behind the scenes that we'll destroy you before you get into the ring. And I have no doubt in my mind it did. And um, I think that's what I question human humans on. Um, when a doctor's looking at you, giving you the injection and you're crying solid tears, being as fit as you could be, feeling really good. I have an underactive thyroid. I hadn't eaten sugar in two years. I did that for myself because I was fighting younger athletes. And I get myself into the best health and somebody goes and undoes does it. For, for what sake? For your sake? It doesn't make sense. Mm. You know, if I'm sick, I'm not going to be there. Yeah. You know, and I started crying because it was two things that came into my mind. And, and when I look back, it's kind of funny in one way, but... The first thing I thought was I should have ate my mother's pavel over the week before because it was sugar. 
<laughs> I sat at the table and had to do without the pavlova. <laughs> and then the other side of me, I started crying because the people I knew that had cancer and was going through these tests and weren't going to get good news when they're out. Me sitting there knowing I'm going to get good news. I'm fine. <laughs> and it was just an emotional, emotional roller coaster. It sounds like there's so much work for this sport to do then. You've yeah. got this Katie thing and obviously mm. Eddie Hearn's gotten behind it mm. and it's huge and she's mm. already, it looks like she's going to be fighting on, mm. well, she is fighting on Joshua's card sure. next and then she's going to be fighting in Madison Square Garden on Golovkin's undercard in a few months' time. Like, that all sounds great, but it sounds to me the way you speaking from your experience, that there's a lot wrong with women's boxing. It's going to take a lot of fixing. Yeah, but it's going back even to Andy Lee. There's a lot wrong with boxing, boxing in general. Yeah, yeah, it's not just a female problem. Um, if if Eddie Hearn can do what he says he will do, well, then we're going to get excited and this will be good. Um, can Katie Taylor change this, that side of the game? Well, I'll be very happy if she can. And I'll be right behind her if she can. If that if her name can go out there and change what I went through um, before and after uh, Tess, and if Eddie Hearn can actually protect her from that, well I will be right behind them and I will be cheering her on to the very last um, unfortunately boxers like me and boxers before that and, and going back to our debut we've been there done that it's just we're dismissed mm. um, in the whole picture and I'm not just saying that from myself personally because I'm not doing it for that um, but it's just not nice to be dismissed that the fact that this is happening um, I often question why Andy Lee isn't double or travel world champion at the stage, this stage. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't like to see this happening to Michael Conlon again, for example. So uh, it doesn't matter whether it's female or male to me. Um, I just think the sport needs a lot more big heads to kind of get in there and say, not, we have to protect athletes here. This isn't just about money and um, power. This is about the athlete. And will that happen? I'm not 100% confident yet on it. Okay. Do you think Katie will have a, a big impact though? I hope so. Yes, I think you, 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 so. I yeah. think she will. I think because... Um, what are, what are the, cha- the challenges that might potentially prevent her from, from sort of having the same effect that she had in when the When two promoters are against each other. Right, yeah. You know, uh, you can be the best boxer in the world sometimes in pro game, not the best boxers are winning the fights. Mm. Um, and I've seen that. Um, I'll give you two examples. Heather Hardy is a big boxer in New York, uh, 17 to 0 wins uh, under Louis de Bella, top promoter over there, and is going for a first MMA fight in January over the dissolution of women's boxing and no money in it. So, I mean, in America, they're talking about America. I can tell you in America, they're they're giving out every day of the week because I'm friendly with these girls. Um, you know, not every Mexican's making it to the top. Do you know what I mean? It's more than just boxing. Um, I think that... Uh, I just think that it's a, it's, a, it's a hard game and sometimes the better boxer you are, you just mightn't get there at the top. It, it's the team and how they play the game. What's your plan now, Christina, yourself, after the latest disappointment? I'm going to continue. Um, on Friday, I certainly would have, wouldn't have answered that. <laughs> um, I did feel disillusioned. I felt very upset. I felt numb. I felt devastated. I felt, you know... I just felt I let down everybody as well as myself. Um, How, why did you feel you let down people? I think because people were buying tickets and people got behind you. There's a See, people, if you relied on boxers to go to boxing matches, you wouldn't have a big f- hall full. Um, we rely on people to like you and I have a lot of following now. I'm building up a lot of following and I felt I let that down. Um, simply because they wanted to see me box um, they wanted it for me and we wanted it for them and you know you can't win a world title on your own y- you need good people you need the media behind you and uh, 
and I rely on that and I'm very grateful for it. But you're going to go on. You're going to continue. I'm going to continue. And actually, the new year is bringing, um, I think, a new story for Christina McMahon. Um, I did get word. Obviously, I can't disclose because we haven't agreed to it yet. But um, it's looking bright at the minute, funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> great <stuff>. After all <laughs> that. <laughs> well, it's good to hear. We wanted to end on a, on a great note. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's a really good insight into... Like it's a tough sport, obviously, and I think yeah. you've given us a good mm-hmm. impact into insight into what you can do and also some yeah. of the pitfalls to try to avoid. Christina McMahon, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, and thank you very much for your time. City dog at his open mother will. You're a wee mate. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. What's it, fans? You just need to fucking work, you wouldn't You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! He's the biggest fool in Manchester. Rob Donegan emailed us at Times at irishtimes.com to say, Hi champs, big fan of the football show from way back when you were on legitimate radio. <laughs> legitimate radio. As an emigrant myself living in Melbourne, I'm a big fan of P. Bezo. One of my other favourites are your various montages and particularly the bags and your desk boom guy. But I don't know who he is. That's the guy I've just heard there. Any chance you could get give listeners old and new and old some background on the various montages and voices that we hear throughout the show? The other one I can't figure out is who Jamie Carragher is talking about when he invites them to Anfield. I crave knowledge, says Rob Donegan, uh, Donegan I should say, in Melbourne. P.S. I will definitely be buying your book annual. Book slash annual. Well, thank you, Rob. I mean, mm. for that flattery. And you call us champs. It's at high champs. I like that. Champs. Greedy. Is that a Australian thing? Uh, probably, yeah. Champs. Well, the Kilmarnock fan... He's a fan of Kilmarnock. Uh, is a guy called Gordon Sowers, and it's been a, it's been in some ways a tragic story. You know, fame is a mask that eats the face. So, <laughs> and after uh, after attaining his viral celebrity by giving out about the spineless players they, and so on, they lost four 0 to Ross County mm-hmm. at home. What's happened since? I haven't heard the follow. Oh, jeez, well, he's gone completely mad. Well, I mean, he he obviously saw how successful that was, kept going. You know, in the same sort of path um, the last thing however that I can see the last mention I'm sure there's a lot has happened since then uh, was notorious Kilmarnock vlogger Gordon Sowers was kicked out of Rugby Park during his clips playoff match for the Falkirk he was spotted the 37 year old 37 was spotted arguing with Falkirk striker John Baird at his side caused down securing their premiership status Sowers, who shot to internet fame with a series of expletive-ridden videos, was ex- escorted. I mean, I'm fucking raging. Was okay. escorted out of the stadium by stewards after getting involved in a row. It uh, left his son, who had already won 100 pounds in a half-time draw, in tears in the stands minutes before Killy hit their third goal of the game. Oh God! He then posted another video on his Facebook account as he was left angry with Kilmark for kicking him out of the stadium. So uh, that hasn't ended well. Well, it's when you start off when when your first sort of. Uh, you know, entry is at that emotional pitch. Really, there's only madness that lies beyond there. You know what I mean? If you want to keep, if you're going to keep raising the ante, you know, there's you're going to end up plunging into the abyss. Jamie Carragher, I'm going to try to remember this one from memory. There was a talk sport program, I think, and one of the presenters was having a go at Carragher for not caring enough about playing for his country. 
compared to how he cared for playing for Liverpool. And then he rings in himself, takes upon himself to ring in and say, well, come on down to Anfield then, we'll sort it out. Is that it? it? Yeah, it was Adrian. the details around? It was Adrian Durham and he was calling Jamie Carragher a bottler because he had retired from international football, which Carragher listening talk sport as he was driving around to Liverpool didn't like I really liked that he rang in <laughs> uh, yeah it was I'll tell to you face I'll tell to you now um, yeah but uh, not a not wasn't really a it, it, accent, but. no but he's not he's not scouse agent Durham oh sorry I thought you were doing Carragher there no that's no <laughs> okay. Carragher Carragher then says, tells him to come down to Anfield but uh, yeah, Adrian Durham was the man. Nice email, Rob. Uh, thanks very much for that. Secondcaptainsatirishtimes.com. If anyone wants to get in touch, you can f- check us out on facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. Hope you enjoyed this show, which has been a long one, I've just realised. But, uh, well, you probably already knew that by the time you looked at it, you realised that looks quite long. I hope you thought the lads aren't shiting on again and they've actually got brilliant guests in to tell amazing stories. I think uh, uh, I would definitely like to thank Christina and, to pa- and Paul for stopping by. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Um, there are a lot of podcasts out there so we appreciate you choosing this one even if it's one of many that's alright it's an open relationship <laughs> just, just as long just as long as you keep coming back to us into our arms at the end of the night Pod podcast polygamy is okay with you <laughs> yeah it's fine it's as long as we're all right. in the mix there thanks very much take care thanks again thanks Al. we'll talk to you soon Is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home though.